heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now turn to your neighbor and just let him know that you love him. Yeah, well, if you're in the right spot, you can kiss them. Yes, go right ahead. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to say a blanket yes because that could get me in trouble. But anyway, uh, Gene, I think you're safe up here on the front row. <laughs> oh, my goodness. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 11. We're going to look in 11 and 12 today. The ways God works. I say ways because it's plural. Uh, chapter 11 Nehemiah begins to repopulate Jerusalem. Now the walls have been built, the gates have been restored, and now they need to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. They've all been living outside the walls. But now they're rebuilt, and now it's time to get people back in. Because a fine, well-defended city, if you don't have that, you've got a problem. So he's ready now, and the people are ready. And the solution... To make that happen is to go about the city through the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel, and uh, draft families to go in to inhabit the city. So they would cast lots, and if those were willing to go, they would go. Uh, We pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of uh, every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Uh, Now some Levites, priests, uh, Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, And descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on his own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. It's a great principle to remember, is that whatever happens to Israel on a physical level is a picture for us today in the New Testament uh, life in a uh, spiritual level. Uh, God is a builder. He builds cities, but he also builds lives. And so here we see an example of that. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.5, we're described as living stones, according to the New Testament. And uh, God is inhabiting us. God has moved into us. But we have to allow him to move in. He will never force his way into your life. But if you allow him to come, and you allow him to... Uh, create and stir and mix and do what he needs to do, you can you know what the answer is. Because if you've let him do that, you know that he kind of stirs around, doesn't he? He turns his spirit loose. And the spirit starts looking into nooks and crannies in our life that we don't necessarily want him to look into. But he looks in there. I used to describe it as a Motel 6. If you stand in the parking lot of a Motel 6 and you look up, Cindy doesn't like to stay in that because the door's open to the parking lot. She wants the door that opens on the inside. I said, honey, they can break in either door. And that doesn't make any sense to me. She seems to be more safe, though, having the door on the inside instead of the door on the outside. 
But if you're standing in the parking lot and you look up at the, at the rooms, you see them. And I've described that sometimes as our life. Our life has different rooms that we have stuff in. And the Holy Spirit wants to be in each of those rooms. And what we do is that most of the rooms, once we become a Christian and we allow Him to live in our life, we open some of those doors without any problem at all. Come on in here. Come on in here. But then we have doors that He comes and knocks on the door and nobody's home. <laughs> he, tries the, he tries the doorknob and it won't open. He tries the deadbolt lock and it won't, it won't budge. We've even got the door so closed, so tight, and stuff in there that we don't want anybody to see, especially God and the Holy Spirit. We'll stuff towels under the cracks so we can't get anything in there. Those are the doors that he really wants to bust into. Those are the doors he really wants to be in. And so sometimes when God is rebuilding us, he needs to end every door. But he won't come and force you. He will come and you can selectively... And by your will, let him come. So one out of ten of these folks were asked to move in, out of the suburbs back into uh, the town. And uh, if you read carefully, uh, when a man was chosen to move in Jerusalem, he was permitted, if he wanted to, to decline. He could stay in his suburb or move into the city. Because God was truly looking for volunteers to do this job. And nothing has changed. The people honored those that were willing to move into the city, just as in the church today, God needs volunteers to get His work done. I don't know why He's chosen to do it this way. Why He's chosen you and me to be the spokespeople for Him. I don't speak very well. You, you may not speak very well, but He wants us to go do it, right? We have to do it. We have to be careful how we do it. We have to be graceful in how we do it. We have to be merciful in how we do it. Uh, Cindy used to have a youth minister when she was a kid growing up, and he would always say when he'd preach at the end of his sermon for the invitation, he'd say, hey, if I need to come and put you in a half Nelson and drag you up here. <laughs> now, if you're a wrestling fan, you know that's a headlock and drag you up to the front. Sometimes we want to do that. But oftentimes it's that gentle, that soft, that, that easy way that we would share the word with people. So God needs us to volunteer. To get the job done. And again, I don't know why he's chosen to do that, but he has. And we should honor those that serve the Lord. We should commend those that come and give their hearts to the Lord. I love it when we baptize people here, don't you? I just love to watch their face. Because you can see that, that, that freedom that they finally have been wanting is finally there. Especially the young people that we've baptized over the last uh, year or so. It's been awesome to watch these kids uh, start to catch it, start to get it. All right? Well, let's look at the latter part of verse 4. Because in this, uh, it talks about two lists, uh, Judah and some from Benjamin. Two tribes that made up the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, these tribes and families that were needed in Jerusalem, they, needed to be, they were there and they were mingling among them and were told that 468 brave men from Judah volunteered to live in the city. 928 men from Benjamin. But there's some interesting aspects to that. Uh, would you notice in the list 
of descendants of Judah, there's one man mentioned, and it's Perez. It includes with the statement the descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem, total 468 brave men. Now, this chapter, this one in 12, does do a lot of listing of people. And rather than read all of the, all of the names and all those things there, I'm just going to give them to you in capsules so you, you, you grasp what's being done. When you come across a statement like uh, that in the Bible where it says uh, that it totaled 468 brave men, if you take a concordance and look up the name that's emphasized, God is saying something very important about that person when he mentions their name. Perez was one of the sons of Judah, who was in turn the son of Jacob, one of the twelve patriarchs who fathered the twelve tribes. The story of his birth is in Genesis 38. It's a rather lengthy, sordid account of which relates how Judah conceived his son with his own daughter-in-law. So there was an illegitimate birth. At the birth, it was found that the mother was about to bear twins, and the brother started to emerge first, and the midwife tied a scarlet string around his finger to indicate he would be the oldest of the twins, but then the baby pulled his arm back, and the other twin came out. And because he broke out in that fashion, he was named Perez, which means breaking out. But following this, rather a shallow beginning, he went on to become one of the great heroes of Judah. His descendants are traced in almost every generation since he's mentioned. Even in Nehemiah, some 400 years after Judah lived, Perez is regarded as one of the heroes of the nation. That's why his descendants are called the brave men of Perez. Then you got the people of Benjamin. And notice that they provided twice as many men from this small tribe as those from that larger tribe of Judah. The sordid hero of Benjamin is given us in the book of Judges. And the last few chapters of that book tell a, so, a sorry tale of people who fell into sexual sin and began to practice homosexuality. A terrible disgrace, a stain on the life of Israel. But two important men came from this tribe. One was called Saul. He became the first king of Israel. He's the great disappointment because he looked good on the outside, but he was rotten on the inside. Ever met anybody like that? Good-looking folks, boy. Woo! But they're rotten on the inside. And then I've met some people that aren't so good-looking on the outside that are jewels on the inside. They are precious on the inside. Powerful on the inside. Pure on the inside. Because we need to be that type of person. Amen? Because it doesn't matter what you look like out here. It matters what radiates from within. That heart... That's pure and before the Lord. That heart that's tuned to Jesus. Because that's where God's looking is at our heart, right? There's another uh, guy in the New Testament named Saul. You remember him? Saul of Tarsus. Became Paul, the Apostle Paul. And uh, then ended up pending and writing most of the New Testament. And what should we learn from this so far? I think... It illustrates what the New Testament often tells us, that God is no respecter of persons. He can use you or me to do his great work. I love the story of Balaam and his donkey for this reason. If God can use a donkey to preach the message, maybe he can use me. 
And maybe he could use you. So, God is no respecter of persons. And I'm, I'm excited about that. Now let's jump on down to verses 10 through 24. It's a lengthy section. has many names, and again, I'm not going to read each one of them. But it's a picture of God's provision for ministry within the city of Jerusalem. Because now that the city's going to be inhabited, there's got to be work done within the city itself so that all the services are taken care of. Can you imagine living in Tulsa or Jinx and not having city utilities running the way they're supposed to run? And doing the things that keep a city running in the way it should run? I can't imagine if if you were a part of the sewer plant. When I was in high school, I got to work one summer at the sewer plant. That was my job. Man, that was a tough job the first week. The smell was horrendous. And they said, what's lunchtime? I said, ooh. You know, you pull out your sandwich and all that, and everything smells like you're at the sewer plant. I popped open my, my Coke, and it tasted like I was at the sewer plant. Even though it didn't, I was drinking a Coke out of the can. You know, here we go. Man, it's just that smell is so perfect. Now, after, oh, about a month, you kind of get used to it. Nah, you don't either. <laughs> you don't either. But can you imagine a city that all of a sudden the, the people working the sewer system said, I'm not working. Man, it could get nasty. What if your house catches on fire and the firemen decide, yeah, I'm not working. How about the police? Somebody's breaking in your house and call the police. And they're, yeah, I'm not working. Or you get a busy or you're, you know, you get a busy signal because <laughs> they're not. They're not, they're not there. But first is mentioned a company of priests selected a total of 1,192 of them. And they fall into th- three different groups. The first group, there's 822 of them who carried on the work of the temple in verse 12. It mentions them. They were normally officiating priests. They offered sacrifices, presented offerings, performed the rituals that Moses had prescribed them to do, and they were the ones who ministered to the spiritual life of the people. In other words, you had to have some preachers among the group. You just do. Now, some of us aren't worth a dime. Gotcha. And then some of them think they're worth a million dollars. I gotcha. They're legends in their own mind. There's a lot of preachers running loose like that who think they're better than everybody that's ever come down the pike. God bless them. God bless them. I sit down here with you, because I'm, I'm among you. I'm not up there on the stage. Of course, I fell off the stage one time, and you guys always remind me about that. That's beside the point. Then the next group, there's 242 of them. They were set aside as heads of families in verse 13. It means that they had a ministry of counseling families, of working out problems and dealing with difficulties in the families of the priests. They didn't neglect their own families while they were ministering to other people, but these men were especially set aside to minister to the priestly families to help them. Then there's a third group. The 128 men were called brave warriors. They're in verse 14. Certain priests were also warriors. They fought in the battles that Israel engaged in from time to time to defend the city. 
And when you carry this over to the parallel for the church today, we find that God has also provided a ministry within the ministry, a group of men and women who are gifted in helping people to understand the meaning of the great sacrifice of Jesus. It doesn't take just me. It takes all of us to share that message, each in our own way. A preacher is of worth no value if somebody doesn't listen to him. Singers are of no value if you don't listen to music. (laughs) If you want to hear them and then go out and buy their stuff, they're going to go broke. Beyonce, it's hard to follow her. But she's a multi-millionaire because people buy these songs, right? Slim Whitman, anybody know that name? Whew, that dates us, doesn't it? (laughs) Slim Whitman. Man, he was a, a... High, high-powered singer years ago, sang real high in falsetto, and he was really a funny-sounding guy. How about Willie Nelson? Busted up guitar, made millions and lost it. <laughs> How about Elvis, the pelvis? Remember, Elvis almost broke up Geneva and Dudley, if you remember that story. Prayer. Some of the warriors that we find in church today are called prayer warriors, aren't they? People that we know will go to battle for us before the Lord. Man, we need those people, don't we? Got a couple of them that still meet every Wednesday right up here. Following the lead of their sister Geneva who's already gone to the Lord. Well, they they pray back there. They ask me every week, anything we can pray for? (laughs) I'm afraid to tell them. They'll take it to the Lord. Oh, don't tell God about it. (laughs) They're going to go do it. Then there was another division that constituted the Levites. 282 of them were in the holy city. They fell into two groups. In verse 16 it says, Who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. See, these two groups would, would be defined today what we would call deacons. They were the ones that took care of the physical nature of the church around the outside, the inside, made sure everything was okay, the lights were on, the the grass was mowed, and, you know, it just doesn't happen. Somebody has to do that. You know, I've mentioned our flower beds before and asked you to come and volunteer and take a flower bed and keep it weeded and looking nice. And uh, very few volunteer to do those things. But we need them. We need them taken care of, don't we? And, uh, uh... We're going to have to do some painting in the spring. So we're going to call on you to come and help us paint. I don't paint very well. We'll teach you how. (laughs) And if you don't paint right, we'll still teach you how. Okay? So you come and just learn. I thought there was nothing to painting. You grabbed it on a roller and you rolled it on the wall. Until we had a gentleman who was a painter by trade who took me aside and said, let me show you how to do this. He said, put some paint on the roller. So I did the way I thought it was supposed to go on the roller. And then he looked at it and he said, put some paint on the roller. I said, I just did. He said, no, you don't have any paint on there. I said, there's paint on there. He said, is it dripping off yet? I said, no. He said, then get some paint on it. So I rolled it till it dripped off. He says, now you're ready to paint. So in other words, you're going to put enough on the wall to make a difference. Instead of rolling it 94 times, you know. So he taught me. Don't be afraid to put paint on your brush. Put paint on your roller. Then there was a second group of Levites, and they were the musicians. And it's very interesting, because if you look carefully, you'll see some familiar names. One was Asaph, 
who was called the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. Another is called uh, Jeduthun. Jeduthun, I think it is. These two names appear frequently in Psalms. In Psalms, many of them are dedicated to the chief musician who was either Asaph or in some cases Jeduthun. These two men who lived in David's day were chosen to set up the ministry of music within the congregation of Israel. Music is important, in other words. Vitally important. First Chronicles 16 and verse 41. Uh, Heman and Jeduthun were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Have you heard that in the end of a song? Music in the church is an entertainment. It's a means by which we're strengthened and we're fed and we're helped. That's what music should do. Music should move our hearts to hear the Word of God better. When you have a hard time sleeping, what do you do? Put on some good music. It'll help you sleep. When Saul was troubled, King Saul was troubled in spirit, he would have David come and play his harp so that he could then rest. First Chronicles 25. It's very interesting. It says, David set apart some of the sons of Asaph, Haman, and Jeduthun for the ministry of prophesying according, accompanied by harps, lyres, and cymbals. And Jeduthun uh, prophesied using the harp in thanking and praising the Lord. Jeduthun and Haman were under the supervision of the king of David. And then Get this, they were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. Wow! Can you imagine the sound that was brought by that? I love to listen to big choirs sing. I love to listen to all black choirs sing. Those people know how to sing now. They do. Every part of their body gets into the song. Even if they can't sing, they can move. <laughs> Poor old white folks, we get up there and they ask us to move and we're like the chosen frozen, man. We... But I love to watch black people praise the Lord. Amen? I want, I want to sing like that. Cindy said, you can't sing like that. But I want to sing like that. Wouldn't it be great? Uh, Bryant and uh, Brad have a sister. And I was trying to get their mother to move up here from Hobart. And they said, well, the sister would have to come. I said, then I want her for sure. Because she leads the singing at their church. That's why I want her to come. I love these boys, but I'll take that girl anytime. Amen? But, boy, they're stuck in Hobart. That's all right. But ministry of music is so important. Don't, don't look past that. Then there's a third group mentioned in verse 19. They were the gatekeepers in, in, in chapter 11, verse 19. 172 of them. They correspond, of course, to the ministry of ushers and who, who watch the doors. It's a ministry that God Himself, through the king and the priest, had set up there in Israel. And there's still other ministries, verses 20 through 24, temple service in 21, uh, chief officers in 22, singers, uh, again, under the king's orders in 23 and 24, the king's agent in all affairs relating to the people in verse 24, troubleshooters, in other words, they were, they were there to do whatever needed to be done. We need people like that in the church. Soon I'm going to have a brochure ready for you. I'm going to put it in the bulletin. I want you to fill it out. But it's called You Can Make a Difference. 
I'm going to present it today to the leadership team and uh, get them get their input on it. But it's something I want you to consider uh, where you can serve and how you can serve and how you want to serve. And that's what this little brochure will help us do. Now look at the names listed in verses 25 through 36. Many cities of Judah and Benjamin uh, uh, list, uh, list these names. And again, I, w- I don't want to take time to read them all because of, of the time constraints. But uh, they're all mentioned as towns to which the capital could look to, for support in times of trouble. So if they had trouble, they could always look to these surrounding towns and they would get people in to help them. Chapter 12 is another list of names, but an even more intimidating list. And starting in verse 1, it says, These were the priests and Levites who returned from Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, and with uh, Jeshua. Takes us back to the heroes of the past. Verse 7 says, Leaders of the priests and their associates in the days of Jeshua, of Joshua. Verses 8 through 10 tells a little more about Jeshua. That, that name is a variant form of Yeshua, which is the Hebrew form of the name Jesus. Here you have Jesus in the Old Testament. Yeshua, we are told in verse 10, was the father of Jehoiakim. And that account traces his line to the priests of Jadua. And Jadua is really an interesting person. The critics uh, say that the dating of Nehemiah isn't very accurate because of Jadua's name. Because he lived um, during the time of uh, Alexander the Great. Jadua would open the book of Daniel and he showed Alexander the eighth chapter in which he predicted that the he goat with a great central horn, who clearly identifies the leader of the Grecian nation, would come against the Holy Land and that he would conquer most of the world that day. When Alexander the Great saw the prediction of his own life and conquest, he was taken back and so impressed that he spared Jerusalem and went down to conquer Egypt and establish the city of Alexandria there. That's mentioned in the Scripture. Now what they've discovered over the years is that there were a lot of priests named Jadua, just like there were a lot of um, governors of Samaria named Sanballat. So be careful when you begin to criticize, well, that's not in the Bible, well, that's not there. You need to do some further study. The bottom line is, and what this passage is trying to teach us is, we must not forget heroes of the past. We've got great heroes uh, of the past in our own spiritual walk. You've got Dwight L. Moody. You've got Billy Graham. You've got Billy Sunday. You've got Corey Tinboom. You've got Elizabeth Elliot. Man, that list could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Verses 22 through 26 give a chronological time when records that we have just looked at were recorded. The first group that did that was the family. Heads of the Levites were recorded in the region or in the reign of Darius the Persian. So more historical connection to the Word of God by these statements, you see, by these verses. Verse 23 is the book of the Annals. The annals of the kings of Judah. One of them is especially mentioned in the reference. David, the man of God. F.B. Meyer, great Bible scholar, said, How long the influence of David has lingered over the world like the afterglow of a sunset. What a powerful statement. Uh, God called David a man after my own heart. Then the last record is of the gatekeepers who served in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it brings us to the end of the passage that we've chosen today. So why is all this important? 
Well, I think it's clear that it marks the deeds of God as part of the recorded history. But when you come to the record of the Bible, it's based upon facts. It's not legends. It's not myth. It's not fiction. It's not a record of philosophies or of the inventions of men. It is made up of historical facts. God grounds these great events in the history of the world itself so that you and I can have a stepping stone of truth to follow. Frequently, we are reminded that faith rests upon unquestionable evidence. If you don't believe that God is who He says He is, and you don't believe that Jesus is who He says, who God says He is, and you don't believe that Jesus came and died on the cross, born of a virgin, raised and died on the cross, and rose the third day, if you don't believe that, <clears throat> why are you in church? If you don't believe that, why do you even live a Christian life? Just live like the ways of the world. Just live under your own, for your own good, if you don't believe it. But you must believe it because you're here. You must believe it because you live different than the world does. You must believe it or you wouldn't be who you are and what you are. So there's great lessons for us today. And I hope that you've gained something from my shotgun effect through chapters 11 and 12. But the number one thing, as I have on the, on the screen, is don't forget past heroes. So I want you to think for a minute. In your life, who would you consider a past hero of faith? I hear Brad and Bryant talk about their dad. I'd love to have met him. Bet he was quite a guy. I mean, I've met your mom. I bet she had her hands full with him and with them. But who's your, who's your hero of faith? For me, it was a guy named Tom Mall. Tom Mall was 26 years old when he preached at my hometown, home church in Wichita Falls, Texas. I was 14 years old. My dad had died of a heart attack. And when I got to the hospital, the doctor told us we could go in and see him. And I went in. And I, I touched his chest with my fingers like this. This hand, too, my right hand. And it sounded like I was knocking on this wood. That's how hollow it sounded. It made me stop and think about some things. I heard Billy Graham preaching a, a crusade, and he said, if you're not ready for heaven, you're going to go to hell. And then he told us how to get ready for heaven. And left an impression. So the next Sunday, when Tom was preaching, I checked the card that says, interested in becoming a Christian. Now, the reason we put those boxes for you to check in there is to give us somebody to come and hound. That's what preachers look for. We look for everybody that marks that box so we can hound you to death till you do something about it. Because that's what Tom did. He hounded me to death to try to catch me. Finally asked my mother, when can I catch him? She said, uh, early Saturday morning before he gets up because he sleeps in on Saturday morning. So at 8 o'clock, he's at my door. My mother said, your preacher's here to see you. I said, I don't want to see him. She said, get up and go see your preacher. So I got up, went in the living room, and the preacher was there. He said, I noticed you checked the card. And I said, oh, the dreaded card. Yes, I just a card. He said, have you ever thought about being a Christian? I said, yes. 
He said, well, why don't we do that? I said, okay. So we went through some scripture together, and then he said, so you'll come tomorrow, and we'll just baptize you in front of the church. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. He said, what do you mean? I said, mm-mm, I, I, no, I don't want to go in front of anybody and do this. I said, I, if I, I just don't want. So I thought I had him. I thought I had my out. He said, well, how about today? It was Saturday. I said, okay. He said, what time? I said, 10 o'clock. He said, okay, I'll be there. So I drove over to the church at 10 o'clock, went in, him and me. We climbed these long stairs to get down in the baptistry because it was real high up off the floor. And uh, I get in the water and I turn around and look. And on the back row, he's got a whole row full of teenagers sitting back there. They were kids in the church that he called. And I looked at him and I said, what are these people doing here? He said, I don't worry about it. <laughs> I said, I told you I didn't want to be in front of people and do this. He said, don't worry about it. So he baptized me. I came out of the water. Those those people in the back row became some of my best friends and encouragers through the rest of my high school years. And when I told him <clears throat> when I told him that I didn't want to come in front of people, look what I do now. So God has a God has an interesting way of weaving your life when you surrender to Him. So maybe you're ready to surrender in a, in a way that you've never surrendered before. Today be a good day. Father, I ask you this morning to stir people's heart. Help them to, to be honest with themselves and to be ready to, to move in whatever way you say move. So God, today, if there's a one that makes a decision, would they do it? Give them courage. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Without him, we can do nothing.